Today's episode is sponsored by News Voice. As you know, monopolies of all kinds, but especially media consolidation, pose an enormous threat to democracy. So while we all continue to push for effective antitrust enforcement, News Voice has come up with an immediate response to the problem. News Voice is a website and app for iOS and Android that gives you a personalized news feed by aggregating a mix of mainstream, international, and independent media sources. The whole site's fueled by crowdsourcing and is meant to be a completely open and democratized source of news that lets you get every side of every story, which means that you can help make the news better for others while you use it. Check it out for yourself. Download the app for free by going to newsvoice.com best. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the monopolistic practices of Amazon with a focus on their effects on labor and wages in America. Clips today come from Start Making Sense, Senator Bernie Sanders' YouTube channel, Building Local Power, Democracy Now!, Belabored, and Counterspin. Isn't Jeff Bezos doing with Amazon what every retailer tries to do? Undercut the competition with lower prices to get their customers. Amazon grows because they are really good at selling stuff, at being retailers. Isn't that true? Well, one thing I would say is that Amazon isn't really a retailer, that its ambitions are much deeper than that. And we should we should talk about that. But the other thing, you know, specifically in response to your question is that Amazon has grown not just by being better at what it does, but often by using very anti-competitive tactics, by being able to use, for example, its deep pockets to sell goods at a loss. Um, so, for example, when Zappos, the shoe online shoe retailer, started up and was growing in popularity and offering a service that people really liked, Amazon responded by selling shoes at a loss. Um, it lost tons and tons of money. Some estimates put it as a high as $150 million selling shoes at a loss. And of course, Zappos being a smaller company just didn't have the deep pockets to match Amazon's prices and sustain those kinds of losses. And eventually it had to give up. It was bleeding red and it said, okay, Amazon, you can buy us. And now Zappos is part of Amazon. And so we've considered Consistently over the years, seen Amazon use different kinds of predatory tactics to block competition um, and to squash other companies. So it's not just a matter of competing on a fair playing field. It's really a, a set of monopoly tactics, and that's what we should be concerned about. You report in The Nation how Amazon strong-armed Birkenstock into selling its special sandals at Amazon. What were Amazon's tactics? You know, Amazon is not only uh, the platform that Birkenstock uh, uh, relies on to retail some of its shoes, Amazon buys Birkenstocks directly, but Amazon also hosts all of these other sellers on its platform who are selling Birkenstocks. And there has been this rising problem of counterfeits, tons of counterfeit Birkenstocks, lots of other kinds of counterfeit products on Amazon's platform from these third-party sellers, many based overseas. And Amazon has been wanting Birkenstock for a long time to sell its full line, not just its 
its major products, but also all its niche shoes directly to Amazon because Amazon wants to compete with specialty local shoe retailers that specialize in Birkenstock and sell that full line. Um, and the way that Birkenstock, you know, it, Birkenstock benefits a lot from those local retailers. They help people, you know, fit their shoes. They provide all of these additional services that really benefits Birkenstock. So Birkenstock rewards them by saying, okay, we'll give you all of these niche products that aren't available elsewhere. Well, Amazon doesn't like that deal because they want to go after that market too. And so what they said to Birkenstock is, you know, we're not going to police all these counterfeits on our site. We're not going to get rid of the counterfeit Birkenstocks unless you agree to sell to us your full line. Wow. And we the only reason we know that happened is that Birkenstock fought back and they actually went public and said, we're not going to do this. And we have a brand relationship with our customers and we're going to stand up. But we have reason to believe that Amazon is doing that with other manufacturers, including Nike, uh, to the detriment both you know, of those companies, but also the competing specialty stores as well. Let's talk about Amazon Marketplace. This is the deal where store independent stores that don't want to compete with Amazon become part of Amazon. Their products are advertised to the millions of people like me who start their shopping at Amazon. Aren't these stores doing all right? They're getting to sell their products to many more people. Yeah, you know, it used to be that when people went to buy something online, they would start at a search engine. You know, so they would maybe go to Google and they would type in the kind of product that they wanted. They would get a bunch of different results, including Amazon. They might go and buy it on Amazon. They might go to one of the other companies offering it and buy it there. Over time, what has happened is that now more than half of all online shoppers are actually starting their product search right on Amazon. And what that has meant for competing retailers, independent stores, competing chains, manufacturers, um, is that if those companies want to reach consumers, uh, no matter how good their website is, no matter how sophisticated their e-commerce strategy is, Half the shopping traffic is already bypassing them. They, they can never find them because they're not even starting on a search engine. They're just starting at Amazon. And what this has meant is that a lot of, of retailers that would like to be doing business on their own directly have been compelled to join Amazon's platform to become third-party sellers on Amazon's site. And this is a really treacherous place to be. I mean, on the one hand, you get back access to that half of the market that's starting right on Amazon. But on the other hand, you're living and dying by Amazon's terms. And we know for, from a study that was done by Harvard Business School that Amazon actually monitors what those, those third-party sellers are selling. And if they have a hot product, Amazon brings it into its own inventory and then begins selling it itself and competing directly against them. Amazon often changes fees, and so the fees for using its fulfillment services have been rising dramatically. And, of course, the third-party sellers have no other place to turn. And so there's this power dynamic, and this is really what, uh, you know, as a centerpiece of what the article is all about, is that Amazon isn't a retailer. That's not the right way to think about it. Amazon wants to control the underlying infrastructure of commerce. And so that all these other companies that want to reach consumers online now have to use Amazon's platform. And soon, if they want to ship things and have them arrive at the consumer's door, they're probably also going to be using Amazon shipping services. And of course, many companies also use its cloud computing services, you know, Netflix, Condi Nast, all these big companies actually re rely on Amazon to manage their data. So in effect, 
all these other companies in the economy, they need to ride Amazon's rails if they want to get to market. They are dependent on the company that is their most ferocious competitor. And therein lies the conflict of interest that is at the heart of the anti-competitive problem that Amazon presents. Amazon uses that privileged position uh, not only to uh, grab the part of the market that it wants and to shut other companies aside, but essentially to levy a kind of tax across the economy, uh, across all this commerce that's going on on its, on its rails. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Minnesota entered the competition over the last few months to find a site for Amazon's second headquarters. Uh, Minnesota offered $5 million in government subsidies uh, if Amazon would build its second headquarters somewhere around the Twin Cities, but that got rejected. What are the biggest offers of taxpayer subsidies that Amazon got for a new headquarters? How much bigger than $5 million are they? Boy, it is amazing. It's just astonishing the figures that uh, elected officials are putting on the table. So in Maryland, they've offered five billion dollars, uh, as well as close proximity to Congress, right? Uh, very advantageous for a company like Amazon right now, as people are starting to scrutinize its power. And then in New Jersey, um, you know, the New Jersey uh, former Governor Chris Christie and Senator Cory Booker uh, and the mayor of New- Newark put together a package worth $7 billion. Oh. That's more than Amazon's headquarters is supposed to cost. I mean, it's just an astonishing figure. And of course, you've got uh, local businesses in in those communities that have been growing and creating jobs and trying to compete without a dime in public assistance. And now they're watching as their elected officials grovel and woo and hand out public dollars to get one of their biggest competitors to come to town. Well, we've been circling around the question of antitrust enforcement. What would breaking up Amazon look like? So with Amazon, I think the essential thing is that we need to separate, we need to get rid of the conflict of interest that's at the heart of its business model. So we need to separate Amazon as a platform that other companies use in order to sell goods online and to reach uh, shoppers. We need to separate that from Amazon as a retailer and a manufacturer of goods itself um, so that the company is no longer able to use what it learns from the companies that rely on it to reach the market in order to compete against them and undermine their their business. And in some ways, this is, um, you know, sort of harkens back to the kinds of problems that we faced, uh, you know, about a century ago with the railroads. You know, we had when the railroads first came along, they were owned by these industrialists who also owned uh, factories and other kinds of uh, companies, and they used their control of the rails to uh, privilege their own goods and shut aside goods made by their competitors. And so th- that's what really gave rise to our antitrust laws in the first place. And we said to the railroads, "You're a common carrier. You have to treat all comers equally and be a sort of fair medium for people to get to the market." And that's really what we need to do with Amazon. The Trump administration is obviously not going to engage in antitrust enforcement against Amazon or probably anybody else, but could cities or states go after monopolies like Amazon? You're part of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, so this is your thing. Could a state or local action work in the case of Amazon? 
There are certainly things that cities can do uh, in, in response to Amazon. There are uh, strategies that we're promoting that you know help communities uh, strengthen local businesses and you know in doing so really insulate their local economies from the worst effects of Amazon. There are other things too. Cities can certainly look at, for example, their own purchasing, you know, their public procurement. Are they buying goods and services from Amazon or are they buying those goods and services locally? I also think that state uh, attorneys general uh, can play an important role here. We've actually seen the Missouri attorney general uh, open an investigation into Google for anti-competitive, potential anti-competitive violations. And some of our most important, you know, antitrust cases in the past, including, you know, the Standard Oil when they were broken up, the Microsoft case in the 90s, those actually really got started with state attorneys general who were doing investigations and then it eventually got picked up at the federal level. And so um, I'm hoping that some, some state AGs will begin to be looking at Amazon more closely. We did an analysis of 11 metro areas and found that Amazon pays about 15% below the average prevailing wage for similar warehouse work. In 2016, we found that Amazon was paying its warehouse workers an average of about $12 an hour. That's no better than Walmart for work that is much more physically demanding. Amazon's approach to work is at once highly futuristic and also this like throwback to this distant past. Its warehouses are highly mechanized. Robots zip around to this very sophisticated choreography. Meanwhile, many of the people they interface with are toiling under working conditions that seem like the 19th century. People who work inside Amazon's warehouses describe the pace of work as just grueling and they're often required to meet these targets that are set so high that they experience failure and just complete exhaustion as a routine of their everyday work. Here's a quote from a recent job posting of Amazon's to give you a sense of what it's like. You must be able to lift up to 49 pounds, stand or walk for up to 10 to 12 hours, and be able to frequently push, pull, squat, bend, and reach. Many warehouse workers actually carry devices that give them an order and then count down the seconds they have to complete a task. Within any given warehouse, there are both regular workers and temporary workers. It's not unusual for as many as half the workers in a warehouse to be temps. They wear different colored badges to denote their status. Blue is for regular workers, white for temps. Amazon likes to call all of these temporary employees seasonal, but the company actually relies on them year round. Temp workers are denied benefits The biggest benefit of temps is that they help Amazon keep regular employees in line. It's really hard to stick your neck out and demand better conditions when Amazon can easily replace you with a temp. The warehouse sector is a low-wage sector often, but Amazon's wages are even lower. Now Amazon is bringing this really precarious, low-wage labor model into package delivery. Amazon is delivering more of its own packages, and to do this work, it's often relying on flex drivers. These are drivers who use their own vehicles, much like Uber, and they're paid a flat rate for each batch of boxes that they deliver, regardless of how long it takes them to deliver those boxes. What this really reminds me of is the old piece rate labor system 
system that was used in the garment industry more than 100 years ago. Labor unions fought hard to get rid of it, and now Amazon is bringing it back. And as Amazon does more and more of its own package delivery and uses this kind of flex labor system, who's at risk? Well, some of the people who are at risk are hundreds of thousands of unionized workers at UPS and the Postal Service. This is one of the last surviving corners of the working middle class. Despite all of this, Amazon likes to tout itself as a job creator, but the truth is Amazon is causing far more job losses than gains. Local businesses are disappearing. In the last 10 years, we've lost over 80,000 independent Main Street retailers, local toy stores, bookstores, grocers. So the problem isn't just Amazon's track record as an employer. The problem really is about Amazon's monopoly power. Amazon is now capturing one of every $2 Americans spend online. And its growth is leading to the collapse of all of these competing businesses. It's squeezing manufacturers who are left with less money to invest in growing their businesses. With Amazon eliminating all of these other businesses, there are fewer companies creating jobs, fewer companies competing for workers. And that's one reason that Amazon can pay such low wages and extract such an inhuman amount of labor from the people who work in its warehouses. So when we think about how we're going to fix what's wrong with Amazon, we need to ask ourselves whether one company should have this much power over working people, over small businesses, over our economy. For workers to thrive, for our economy to thrive, we really need to confront Amazon's power directly. Today's episode is sponsored by Tidal, and they're a different kind of music streaming app. They work to foster the relationship between artists and fans, and they value diversity in music, all while also using their platform for good. They offer unlimited music and video available completely ad-free, so you can play your favorite classics and discover new artists just like you'd expect, but they also bring a social justice angle. Title's fourth annual benefit concert, Title X Brooklyn, supports criminal justice reform. All net proceeds will go to the organizations working to reform our criminal justice system, like the Equal Justice Initiative, Reform, The Innocence Project, and Cut 50. Over 65% of prisoners serving life without parole for nonviolent offenses are African American, and one in every 15 African American males is incarcerated compared to just one in every 106 white males. That means that one in three African American males can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. So tune in and donate to the cause at title.com slash Brooklyn. Past concerts have featured artists like Stevie Wonder, Nicki Minaj, Jay-Z, and Jennifer Lopez. The live stream is free, so mark your calendar for October 23rd and tune in at title.com slash Brooklyn. Why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about what's been happening to wages in recent years? Yeah, so there's a longstanding question among labor economists about why wages have been uh, stagnant, a 
issue that has now lasted for several business cycles. So normally economists would expect there to be a decline in wages or at least a slowing in the growth rate of wages when uh, there's a recession and then there's sort of a catch-up period during the the boom that follows a recession in which wages grow faster um, than average and kind of bring the whole economy back such that the share of total income that goes to workers um, is more or less constant over time. So even as the economy grows, uh, there's sort of an equal division of the pie among the owners of labor and capital over time. And consequently, the total absolute amount that's going to workers um, would be rising over time as the economy gets larger. Uh, what has been going on now since 2000, at least, is that the uh, share of the pie that goes to workers has been in decline. And it's been in decline in a very specific way. That share of the pie declines when there has been a recession, as there was in 2000, 2001, and then again in the Great Recession uh, starting in 2008. Um, and then there, it's basically flat during the resulting recovery, um, during the recovery that follows the recession. And that is the phenomenon that I think is getting increased attention from labor economists because it cannot be explained by any of the data, by any of, of the observables that economists would typically typically think of as causing long-run changes in uh, wages for individuals and for the economy as a whole. And notably, that would be education. So um, the view among economists is that what determines how much individual workers get uh, over the course of their lives is how, much, how what their skills are. And you can tell what their skills are from their level of education and their level of experience in the labor market. Um, and increasingly, Increasingly, education is just not a very good way of discerning who gets what in the labor market. Um, we have already known this before my paper came out about monopsony specifically because um, there's an increasing uh, inequality in interfirm uh, earnings among workers. And what that means is that the, 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 the company that you work for matters more in determining your, your wages than it previously did. So rather than it be your own mm-hmm. qualities, your own data, that's like uh, education and race or gender that is relevant to knowing or what, what your total uh, income is. It matters more who you work for and their position in the economy uh, and their position vis-a-vis uh, workers. So I think that had already kind of primed the the economics scholarly community to look for explanations for who gets what that are at odds with kind of received wisdom, at least as it's existed for the last uh, couple of decades in economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff in what you just said, and and let's unpack it a little bit. But let me first just uh, go go back to what you were saying near the beginning, which is you know that that in recessions, what we've seen in the last couple of recessions is that uh, the share of the overall economic activity that's going to wages has been has been declines, and that's sort of normal in recessions. But then what's been really unusual is that in the recovery periods workers are not seeing their wages go up. And I think most people who are listening will feel a sense of, will recognize that problem maybe in their own lives. Um, what's really striking right now is I think if, if I read this correctly, correctly, unemployment is now at a 17 year low. I mean, we would expect, I mean, am I wrong in that kind of condition that we're experiencing right now? Wouldn't we expect wages to really be being pushed right up? I mean, if there's that much demand for work overall, that would have this effect on wages, but we're really not seeing that. And what signs of, of growth we are seeing in wages are kind of tepid. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. There's definitely a, a puzzle that results from, well, if unemployment is so low, why aren't uh, workers kind of getting cut in on the deal, so to speak? I want to 
kind of drill down directly to one of the statements that you just made, which is the reason why unemployment is low is because demand for labor is high. And I think that's the thing that uh, economists would typically have assumed when unemployment is low, that that is because demand for labor is high. But that is potentially one of the mechanisms that is sort of broken in the economy. Um, I think one of the causes of measured low unemployment is um, that a lot of people have left the workforce and uh, that you can see that in both at sort of younger ages, people spending more time in school, people going back to school, people getting credentialized, um, and also at older ages, people sort of finding ways to take early, what amounts to early retirement or taking early retirement as opposed to uh, waiting for sort of full retirement. All of those mechanisms are kind of eating away at um, the labor force from both ends of the age distribution and even in the middle you see people exiting the labor force kind of for good and and becoming discouraged um i think that matters a great deal for whether you know to what extent monopsony is kind of the ultimate cause of these problems because monopsony is a problem that would cause firms to demand fewer workers uh and thus lower wages for the workers that they already have um and that could uh sort of macro level exactly be uh, at the heart of these issues of, well, why has labor force participation seemingly declined among workers at kind of every level of the, of the labor market life cycle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've got an opioid crisis out there and, right, uh, right. you know, people dying earlier than they used to. So I think that mm-hmm. sort of feeds into maybe part of this despair and being outside of the job market that you're talking to. It's all kind of wrapped up maybe together. So you used a word a couple of times now, um, monopsony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yes. most people are like wondering, are you misspeaking? Did you mean monopoly? Because that's a word people know. But what is monopsony? So monopsony is like monopoly, except it's when the power is held on the buyer side of any market. So you could have a monopsony in, say, the market for agricultural products, um, as I think we probably do have. It, it's especially uh, important in the labor context because the view is that in general, uh, workers are uh, – have have less power in the labor market than do employers and cer- certainly the findings that we have in our paper would seem to suggest that as does the findings on interfirm earnings inequality and lots of uh, other sorts types of evidence point in the direction of widespread monopsony power in labor so what that means in a in the kind of nerdiest context is that um, employers have power to set wages. The, in the standard competitive model of the economy, individual firms do not have the power to either set prices uh, in the market for their output, so that's monopoly, nor do they have power to set wages in the market for one of their inputs, which is labor. Um, they just go to the market, and if they need a new worker, the market sets the price for that worker. When there's monopsony power, Firms' decisions change because they affect the wages that all of their workers make when they decide to employ or not employ a worker at the margin. So in the sort of most orthodox model of labor market monopsony, firms will choose to hire fewer workers than they do in a competitive labor market um, because of the effect that hiring fewer workers has on the price, on the wage they pay to all of their workers. Um, And that's kind of the the 
fundamental story that's going on, not just in our paper, but in all of the kind of theoretical work about, you know, why would we think that monopsony would have an effect on all of these labor market outcomes we've been talking about, not just um, wages, but also uh, people exiting the labor force, as you pointed out, the opioid crisis, lots of sort of what I would consider labor market pathologies um, can potentially be explained by uh, widespread monopsony power. Mm-hmm. Labor market pathologies. That's a new phrase I haven't heard before. Um, so a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with monopsony um, in the context more that we've talked about it on this show before, where a company is so powerful that it can set uh, the price that it pays for a certain input. So we've talked about this, like, for example, in agriculture, where farmers are trying to sell, you know, their hogs or their chickens, and the, the processing industry is so concentrated into a few hands that those companies basically can say, we're not going to pay you very much, and you have no competition. And this is kind of the same thing, but it, it's it's about wages and, and that what workers can get in the marketplace. So you've done, um, together with a couple of, of other economists, Jose Azar and Iowana Marinescu, um, have done a couple of studies that really delve into this and have been getting a lot of attention. And I, I want to talk a little bit about the first one that you did, which came out back in December. And I'll say to listeners, you know, you can go to the show page for this episode, and we'll post links to these studies and to the New York Times article and everything else. And you'll find the show page at ILSR.org. But just starting with that first study, one of the most visually arresting maps I've seen in a while is in that study. And it's this map of the United States broken up, I think, by county. And it's a measure of how concentrated the labor market is in each county. That is, the notion that if you're in a particular occupation, there may only be one or two, three, or three companies within your commuting distance that, um, you could apply to for work, that it's a highly concentrated market. And so you use red to show extremely concentrated and most of the map is red. And then, you know, some other parts of it are orange and yellow, which are highly and moderately concentrated. That's pretty much the rest of it, orange, yellow, and red. And then there are a few islands of green. Those are unconcentrated markets, but they're very few. It's Minneapolis, Denver, uh, Boston, Miami. It's mostly cities. Um, and then just surrounded by this sea of highly concentrated labor markets. Tell us a little bit about what you, what's behind this map. Where does the what kinds of occupations are you looking at? What does this really mean? Yeah, so the data set that uh, we worked on in that first paper is from the uh, online uh, job matching uh, company uh, Career Builder, and basically you employers would pay to post a uh, job ad on that website, and then would-be applicants can see it just as they would have in the olden days gone to classified advertising in the newspaper and submit a uh, application via the uh, via the website for that job, um, and that's a fairly uh, rich data set relative to the data sets that um, most labor economists are used to because you can see at least some information about both employers and uh, employees. So the kind of classical labor economics that I was referring to before where you study education, race, and gender, that's because mostly for workers, you just see things about the worker and maybe, you know, and also what they get paid, but you don't see anything about their firm. Here, at least we do see which firms are posting vacancies and where they're located. Um, and we can thereby, uh, create the map that you're just 
referring to. So what we did was look at um, the occupations that are, that arise most frequently in this database. So I think it's twenty most of the most frequently most frequently appearing occupations, and we define the labor market uh, as the uh, vacancies that are posted for those occupations within a given commuting zone in a given quarter. Uh, so that is an important concept, market definition, especially if you're doing uh, antitrust type analysis to see whether the market is concentrated or unconcentrated and to what extent. And we think that that market definition is not necessarily exactly the right market definition in every single case, but it is small c conservative in the sense that when workers are looking for a job, they tend to look for jobs that they think they would have some chance of getting. Um, and if you look at the occupation level that we look at, it's actually wider than the set of jobs that workers would think they have some chance of getting looking at uh, that data set from the perspective of which jobs do the workers actually apply to. So we're including more job vacancy postings in our market definition than we think are really relevant to individual workers who are looking for a job. So that would tend to underestimate the degree of concentration in that labor market. And yet we still find the results that you refer to, which is um, that labor markets tend to be highly concentrated. Um, one last thing to note about how that that chart is created, how that map is created is, you know, this, this whole data set is about, uh, job vacancy postings, um, insofar as economists have studied, uh, labor market concentration at all before, it tends to be the concentration of employment and not the concentration of vacancies. Um, and I think it is correct to look at the concentration of vacancies if you can, as opposed to the concentration of employee, employment, which generally, uh, easier to get data on the concentration of employment. Um, because what's really relevant to workers who are looking for a job is how many firms are actually hiring. And again, going back to the idea of pathologies of the labor market, one thing that we observe in this era of slack labor markets is that workers tend to stay in the same jobs for longer because they themselves cannot move up uh, the job ladder as, a, as is the sort of metaphor that economists typically use. Um, and the flip side of workers staying in the same job for longer and not moving up the job ladder is that any given job is vacated less frequently. So even if, you know, say there's a number of people currently working as a farm equipment mechanic in the area of Wisconsin, uh, where Matt Gies works. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are, there are vacant jobs in that area that he could potentially apply to. Um, and that's why I think we show a finding that, uh, caught, caught a lot of people's attention, um, because they're, you know, they tend to think like, oh, well, you know, every firm, maybe not every firm has a farm equipment mechanic, but every firm, um, you know, has, uh, administrators and secretaries. Um, and, you know, certainly it seems like the healthcare sector, um, employs a lot of people. Um, so you would think that, say, the market for nurses is is relatively unconcentrated, but no, that doesn't necessarily mean that there are jobs available for people in all of these different occupations, especially not for people who happen who, who are looking for a job. There, I think there are many fewer uh, options to be had, and that's why the finding of concentrated labor market seems to ring such a uh, ring so true with people. For 
more on working conditions at Amazon. We're going to Britain right now to speak with journalist James Bloodworth, who spent a month working undercover as a picker in an Amazon order fulfillment center and found workers were urinating in bottles because they were discouraged from taking bathroom breaks. His new book is Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us, James. Lay out what you found about Amazon. You've been tweeting nonstop about it hitting a trillion dollars. Its CEO, its founding um, uh, head, Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's I've been tweeting about it and doing things like this in the media because it's really important, I think, to recognize what that huge wealth um, that Jeff Bezos and Amazon have accumulated, what that's built on. So before I went in 2016, I went into the I went into an Amazon warehouse here in the here in Britain. And before that, I mean, I, I used Amazon myself. It was it was kind of a first first place I'd go to buy books or DVDs. Say, um, I didn't really know much about what goes on in the warehouses. I kind of like like other people. I mean, I kind of I, I wouldn't say I idolized Jeff Bezos, but Bezos, but he was someone in the culture who was you know you had some respect for because he'd set up this organization that that so many of us used. Um, and while I went into the warehouse in 2016, um, it was I mean, I was I was really, really shocked um, by some of the things I saw there. Um, I'd, I've worked in warehouses before this. It's not as if I was afraid of hard work or, or as if this was I'd never been in a kind of warehouse environment. Uh, but the atmosphere of the Amazon warehouse I worked in was what I imagine the atmosphere of a, of a low security prison would feel like. So and again, that, that this isn't an exaggeration. So. For example, we had to be drug and alcohol tested before we started work, which I'd never had to have that done before. Um, we had to pass in and out of giant airport style security gates um, every time we even went to the toilet um, during the day. Uh, if, you, if you took a day off sick, you were given a disciplinary for that. And if you received six of these disciplinaries, you would effectively lose your job. Um, and this was taking a day off sick, even if you had a letter from the doctor, um, even if you phoned in beforehand to say that you were um, that you were going to be sick. Um, so if you took six days off sick, you would effectively lose your job. And this was the biggest employer in this town. Um, other things, I mean, people were afraid you, people were receiving disciplinaries for taking toilet breaks. The productivity targets were so um, high that workers were afraid to go to the bathroom. I mean, a survey came out of the Amazon warehouse I worked in recently, which found that 74 percent of workers, there, order pickers were afraid to use the bathrooms because um, of the productivity targets. And, and one and of this culminated uh, in James Bloodworth. Uh, one day I found a bottle of urine on the shelf. James Bloodworth, on the productivity issue, uh, the, uh, the the students that, at, in my class re reported from their interviews that pickers were required at, to pick 300 items per hour uh, from the various shelves in these huge warehouses. That comes to about 12, uh, 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 one item every 12 seconds. Yeah, I mean, it was it was astonishing. So, I mean, the first week I was working there, I was uh, an Amazon supervisor came around to find me and told me that I was in the bottom 10 percent of productivity. And um, and I'm someone who's relatively healthy. You know, I, get, I run, I go to the gym. I'm 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 still fairly reasonably young. Um, but and I and someone like me was was was, you know, at the bottom of the productivity pecking order. Um, so imagine what it's like if you're older, if you're if you're overweight at all, if you have a disability. It was just impossible to keep up with the with the targets. Um, and so what what happened was people were running around this huge warehouse, um, which is dangerous for a start. And then you can also you also received a disciplinary for running. So to hit your targets, 
Um, if you didn't hit your targets, you'd receive a disciplinary. Um, and, but to hit your targets, you had to break the rules by running around, for which you'd receive another uh, disciplinary. So what happened was you have this huge turnover of staff. No one's hanging on to their jobs because people are just being fired for anything. And people, people are also leaving then before their full kind of employment rights kick in. So this is agency staff. We're all agency staff. And uh, we, the, this turnover of staff, it's almost as if, you know, you can't prove it, but it's almost as if it's intentional. There's this, they, they try to get rid of you quite quickly because uh, then they can bring more people in who don't have the same employment rights as a full-time mm -hmm. employee. Very quickly, James, you said you found urine bottles, people afraid to go to the bathroom to take time. Yeah, so I mean, this 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 has kind of blown up since the book came out. But it was it was something that I saw when I was working in the Amazon warehouse. So one day, one afternoon, walking walking around the you know the top floor of this huge warehouse, and yeah, I I found a, an empty Coca Cola bottle with with urine in it on the shelf. You know, yellow liquid smelt it. It's, it's very clear straight away what it is, and you put two and two together, and this has happened because. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's a climate of fear and you're afraid if you go to the toilet, which can take five, 10 minutes, you know, huge warehouse through security. Uh, and people are being told, being accused of taking so-called idle time, um, by Amazon for doing this. Everything which takes away from productivity at Amazon is, is seen as you're doing something wrong. We so have 10 seconds. Really you you have it. 10 seconds. You said at one hair warehouse in the UK, Amazon workers called ambulances more than 115 times in three years. Yeah, that was the warehouse I worked in. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that says it all, really, in, in my view. As you know, we've been keeping our eye on the upcoming elections this year more than ever, because if we flip just 23 districts in the House, Democrats will take back the majority. And that's the best chance we have to put a check on Trump. That means protecting our health care, protecting the rights of everyone, and protecting our democracy. Swing Left is helping organize volunteers to help get this done. When you join at swingleft.org left, you will be immediately connected with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the race in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact on flipping the house starting right now. Democracy doesn't just happen once every couple of years, it's what happens on every day in between. So don't just vote this year, volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's working for change in this year's midterms election. Again, sign up now at swingleft.org slash left. Right now, we are looking at a week where we just saw workers striking um, in Germany, um, in Europe, in Amazon, uh, taking action there. They do have a union. Um, and um, how do you see this reverberating in the global Amazon workforce? Um, and um, have there been solidarity efforts um, cross borders uh, given the incredibly globalized nature of Amazon's operations? I think that there's an incredible opportunity for solidarity across borders. I think what's really exciting that's happening right now is you can just see people waking up across not just the country, but the world to this reality of this online retail future driven by this behemoth corporation and People are ready 
to stand up to that and really ready to throw down. And even without coordinating with each other. I mean, what's to me incredibly powerful is that it wasn't coordinated. It, it was not coordinated. These are separate entities, including us, who have been waking up to this reality, starting to mobilize, starting to organize at a local level, building up, ready to throw down. And lo and behold, we discover that people are seeing what we are seeing all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, there's an amazing opportunity for cross-border organizing, and clearly that should happen. But what's powerful is how authentically grassroots the uprising is. There's no one out there, you know, who called us on the phone and said, hey, let's, let's do, you know, we want to do national actions against Amazon during Prime Week. Why don't you jump on board? You know, there are multiple entities. There are grassroots organizations, labor organizations, workers, advocates all over the place who have been waking up to the same reality and saying, we have to start this fight now. We have to start because we cannot let this go on without any reasonable standards and unchecked. Currently, we're looking at a retail employment landscape where everyone is talking about the sky falling on retail, the so-called retail apocalypse. Um, but on the other hand, we have organizers like you pointing out that, look, the retail workforce is not going away. It's just morphing into this different form uh, in this different industry that is operating primarily online, often under even more degraded conditions than traditional brick and mortar stores. How do you see this um, kind of inheriting some of that earlier wave of retail worker organizing, since this is the new retail model um, that we'll be seeing in the coming years? And um, what do you say to people who say that, you know, oh, retail is dying all over the country? I say retail is not dying. Retail is booming, but it is just reconfiguring. And even the warehouses themselves are reconfiguring. Because Amazon aside, there were tens of thousands of warehouse workers in New Jersey 20 years ago because of the ports. When manufacturing went overseas, warehouses became necessary for the retail industry because you can't put all your stockpiles in a store because a store is located, you know, in a high rent area and you can't, you can't warehouse there and, and, and companies don't. But what's happening is that the retail industry has just undergone a sea change and the warehouses themselves have undergone a sea change so that warehouses that 20 years ago boxed their stuff and sent it to the store, now send it some to the store. They send boxes or pallets of boxes to Amazon for Amazon to sell through their online department store. And they also do individual fulfillment of customer orders. They do individual fulfillment of customer orders for Amazon. They do individual fulfillment of customer orders for name brands, you know, Nike, Donna Karen, Target, brands we've heard of. Um, And the whole industry is booming, but it's morphed into a new form. And, uh, but consumers are consuming. I mean, we all see those boxes pouring into, you know, our residential communities, whether you live in a house or you live in an apartment building, 
People point, click, their stuff is coming. Retail is booming. Amazon is, you know, richer than Midas and getting richer. But what's going to happen with the workers? Mm -hmm. We have to make them visible and we have to make the issue visible. The bricks and the mortar may be going away, but the the, uh, the human resources are definitely not in this sector. <laughs> that That is right. And, and particularly in New Jersey, where this is such a pervasive sector, you could drive through communities in New Jersey, industrial areas, and just see warehouse after warehouse after warehouse after warehouse across central New Jersey, Middlesex County, Union County. Uh, Bergen County. I mean, you just building after building after building after building, and there are just tens of thousands of workers, and they are they're your neighbors. They are our neighbors. They're everybody's neighbors. And if they're making poverty wages, if they don't have proper health insurance for their kids, if they don't have predictable schedules, which is just an incredible abuse, that people can't know from week to week what day of the week they're going to work, what hour they're going to report, what hour they're going to finish. You know, these are just abuses that undermine quality of life for people and communities in a profound way. And we have to just, we have to stand up to this. business owners like me are competing against and in many ways even controlled by companies like Amazon. The shift to online shopping and the growing dominance of big box stores and online retail giants like Amazon are threatening the livelihood of the small business community and the workforce across the state and the nation. If our local and federal policies don't keep up with the rapidly evolving landscape, we will all pay a price. Chances are, if you've purchased something online recently, you've interacted with Amazon in some form or another. Amazon's quickly become one of the world's top online retailers, capturing nearly one of every $2 that Americans spend online. Retailers and workers across the state and the nation are feeling the impacts of this dominance. And they escape paying taxes, and they choose to offer low wages to their employees, despite the company's profits. Even more outrageous, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance released a 2016 report that reveals that not only does Amazon use overseas tax havens to dodge paying taxes, something I can't do since I live here in Vermont, they avoid paying sales tax in 16 states and use any competitive tactics to eliminate or gain control of competitor businesses. At the same time, Amazon has received over $600 million in public subsidies since 2005 to support the creation of its fulfillment centers. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos is now infamously known for having surpassed Warren Buffett as the richest person in the world. He reached a net worth recently of $158 billion. And yet despite this extreme wealth, Amazon continues to intentionally destroy and gain control of competitors' businesses and, more importantly, exploit its own workers while the rest of us are left to pick up the tab.
We've heard in the news that Senator Sanders introduced legislation targeting larger companies like Amazon and Walmart and other major retailers by requiring that they pay a tax to cover the cost of federal assistance for their employees. I support this initiative as a concrete step towards leveling the playing field for locally owned, independent, bricks and mortar businesses. We support local communities contributing to a strong workforce and it will reduce income inequality and help in expanding the middle class. As a small retailer competing with Amazon and big box stores, and with the shift to online shopping in general, it can be difficult to bring in enough revenue to stay in business and to provide my employees with higher wages and robust compensation packages. I and the members and leaders of the Main Street Alliance believe in a small business driven economy and its connection to a thriving community. Our policies, state and national, must reflect the changing economy and ensure that we aren't favoring wealth extracting giants like Amazon that dominate the market and decimate our communities. The success of locally owned independent businesses is inextricably tied to the health and well-being of the communities. Vermont small business owners understand this and Amazon certainly does not. Amazon got a PR boost from its announcement that, after considerable pressure, it would raise workers' minimum wage to $15 an hour. Immediately after, we learned that the company would simultaneously be cutting monthly bonuses and stock options, such that many warehouse employees have said they'll actually be getting less money. That sort of maneuver is one of the things that rubs many people wrong about Amazon, now one of the country's largest employers, along with responding to charges of abusive conditions by having select staffers maintain Twitter accounts in which they explain, Stepford-like, how glorious it is to work there. But maybe most galling is the disjuncture between nickel-and-dimed employees some of whom report peeing in trash cans because bathroom breaks are recorded as time-off task, while Jeff Bezos is rich as Croesus. And how is it that a company with paid employees who rely on food stamps and that demands tremendous subsidies from communities just to locate there can be held up by media as an exemplar of success? It matters whether we label Amazon a success without asterisks and whether we're okay with the extent of its power. One with questions on that is journalist Neil DeMoss. His latest book is The Brooklyn Wars, and he joins us now by phone from Brooklyn. Welcome back to Counterspin, Neil DeMoss. Always a pleasure. Well, I think many people think of Amazon as a guilty convenience. You know, we know the company has problems, internal and societal. So if we use it, we feel culpable. And this frustrates me. You know, Amazon's malfeasances are not determined by people who don't have bookstores in their town, you know, or people who can't physically go out to the store, you know. But there's the limit, and you write about this in your recent piece for Gothamist, the limit of seeing ourselves only as consumers, you know, that's our only power is where we spend money, but it turns out not to be very much power. So I'll just ask you the question you pose in the piece. 
In the absence of a trust buster in the White House, is there anything that mere mortals can do to reduce Amazon's sway over our lives and pocketbooks? And then for those who may wonder, why should we want to reduce that sway? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I certainly empathize with everyone else who, who looks at Amazon as a convenient pleasure. You know, I mean, it is a phenomenal way to avoid thinking about where the best place is to get a product, where the cheapest place is to get a product. You just think, well, I've already got my Prime membership. You know, I'll just go to Amazon and they'll have it for some price that is probably okay. And the shipping's free, so it's great. And look, I can, you know, go and watch a TV show while I'm there. But one of the interesting things is, you know, we sort of have this idea of the way to respond to corporate malfeasance in our age is to vote with our pocketbooks, right? And we've learned from boycott movements. And, you know, I remember back 20, 30 years ago, there was a spate of, like, paperbacks that came out about, you know, how to shop for a better world. And it very much is sort of the ethos of modern times that you make a statement with your dollars And that was not always the case. And one of the things I found interesting in researching this article was the degree to which that was, first of all, a response to some of the big corporate chains like A&P in the 20s and 30s trying to get people to identify more as consumers because they want people thinking and, you know, and voting on the basis of what's best for me for, you know, easy shopping, not what's best for me as a worker, what's best for me as a business owner who has to, you know, compete with these chains. And then again, after that, starting in the 60s and running through the 80s and 90s and up till today, consumer movements as a response to our lack of political power in other ways, right? You know, if, if Congress is all sold out to corporations, at least we can vote with our dollars. The problem, of course, being that that's not a very effective way of, of accomplishing things. So, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the article is sort of look at both what you can do when you go to shop, but also what you can do to affect our shopping choices and our corporate world outside of that sort of consumer basis. Well, yeah, so much, first of all, that's presented as kind of eternal is actually just historical, you know, and there has been a shift. Uh, Now we talk about companies, are they good companies? Are they bad companies? But it used to be that just bigness itself, just size itself of a, and power was considered to be a cause for concern. Yeah, and, and, you know, clearly Amazon with this announcement this week of, you know, raising their minimum wages is trying to cast themselves as we're not bad guys, we're good guys, right? And that's kind of not, you know, shouldn't be the point, right? I mean, it's nice that they're doing that. Um, but does that mean that we should trust a company with massive control over all areas of our consuming experience and our entertainment experience and our cultural experience and the ability to compile you know massive amounts of data from our behaviors in all these different places? Does it make it better if they're nicer people rather than worse people? I mean, I guess a little bit. But really, if we're going back to the principle that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, the idea is really nobody should be trusted with that level of power, which is the whole point of the antitrust movement of late 19th and early 20th century. And I think one of the realizations here is, and what you know, Stacey Mitchell was saying eloquently in my article, is that 
we need to not just approach this as how do we find the most conscientious way to shop, but we need to really have a return to antitrust. You know, we really haven't had a strong antitrust movement to break up these enormous monopolies in the last few decades. And, you know, regardless of whether it's Democrats or Republicans in power, we really need to start pushing in that direction. Well, and uh, what Stacey Mitchell from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance says is that folks are starting to see that, she thinks, you know, that there was a period where Amazon was this bright, shiny thing that made life easier. And now it's starting to shift a bit to people recognizing that canceling your Prime account is not necessarily going to be enough, given that, as you report, a lot of what Amazon does is out of the reach of individuals. They're selling to public agencies, you know, they're selling, you know, over your head, um, in, in a sense. But there is movement afoot to talk about antitrust in a way that, that might make it more meaningful again. Yeah, and the FTC is holding hearings, and there's an antitrust caucus in Congress now, and there are, you know, some rumblings. And I think things like, you know, obviously Facebook breaches and all the other sort of big malfeasance that we're clearly seeing by some of these big overarching corporations is starting to get attention, not just from consumer advocates of the world, but also in Congress and in other other places. But it's going to have to be a big push, obviously, right? Because, you know, Amazon and companies like that have the ability not just to lobby like crazy, but also to do things like try to undercut opposition by suddenly saying, hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to raise our minimum wages, which, again, is not nothing, but it's an attempt to deflect, right, an attempt to get people off their backs. I think something that is going to be a battle not just over the next year or two, but over the next decade or two to really sort of try and push back, again, in the same way that it took decades to fight the power of the monopolies, whether it were railroads or whoever. Standard Oil back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We've just heard clips today, starting with Start Making Sense, talking with Stacey Mitchell about all of the reasons why it's time to break up Amazon. Then we heard an explanation of how Amazon drives down wages from a video on the Bernie Sanders YouTube channel. Building Local Power dove into the details of monopolies, monopsonies, and highly concentrated labor markets. Democracy Now! spoke with journalist James Bloodworth about his time spent working in an Amazon warehouse. Belabored interviewed an Amazon worker about the multiple strikes that took place on this year's Prime Day. Another video from Bernie's YouTube page explained how Amazon hurts small businesses. And finally, we just heard a counterspin talking with Neil DeMoz in the wake of Amazon getting credit for raising their minimum wage just before revealing that they would be cutting bonuses to pay for it. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips on today's topic, specifically about what at least some Democrats are saying on the subject, including Ro Khanna explaining the Bezos Act that he and Bernie Sanders introduced together, and some discussion of Elizabeth Warren leading the fight against monopoly power. To hear all of that and for other details on membership, visit patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. You can find that link in the show notes on your devices, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. As I may have previously said, I work in healthcare. I'm an uh, ultrasound tech. 
in a small town in Alabama. I actually drive from Atlanta to uh, Alabama every day. And one of the things I try and do as part of my, uh, I guess you could say, praxis is where there's an opening, if somebody brings up, you know, how awful the healthcare system is or, or how uh, insurance companies are, are really bad and uh, inefficient, I will try and push for a uh, single payer and I'll try and say, well, you know, I grew up in the UK. I don't know why America has this healthcare system. I think it's all, you know, ridiculous that it's even politicized. And sometimes people will agree with me and we'll have a discussion about single payer. And other times it'll be the complete opposite. So I think in relation to your comments about the Van Jones quote about um, people being stupid and voting against their best interests, um, I think there's just a lot of misinformation here in the, in the bubble bot itself. And that, uh, you know, there are people that think, for instance, that Obama encouraged people to put, you know, to get uh, welfare when he became power, which is obviously, you know, complete BS. Somebody else, you know, argued with me that, well, I got healthcare in the military, and uh, if you want to get healthcare, you should just join the military. And and I said to him, well, look, I work in healthcare, and I can't afford it. His argument was to tell me how I should work, at, take on an extra job to pay for healthcare. So even though I have two degrees and I work in healthcare, he thinks. The, the, the best thing for me to do is to have to get a, another job. It, that's how it's just it's complete batshit. But um, you know, I persist on. I don't always obviously bring it up. But uh, I found a lot of people are very receptive to uh, doing like a single payer system, and uh, I'm going to continue to bring it up with patients uh, whenever possible, and hopefully I can push the needle to the left a little bit. But uh, anyway, thanks a lot for the show. I appreciate it. everything you do as always. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, just some quick comments today on uh, the issue of the week, really. Obviously, the Kavanaugh hearings and and confirmation just wrapped up. I lived through it just like all of you did. It's been a horrible time. And very, very understandably, uh, rightfully, there is a lot of anger being directed at Joe Manchin right now. Of course, I join everyone in their anger at Joe Manchin. That said... That anger is being directed by some in very unproductive directions, and so I just wanted to touch on that today. I have no idea how widespread this is, but I know that people don't know the details of how the government works because it's super boring, and so when people get really, really frustrated and they want to take it out on someone or something and they don't know how the government works, they can end up doing more damage to themselves than their intended target. So with Joe Manchin as the example, very, very unsurprisingly, there were calls from progressives trying to defeat Joe Manchin like in this year's election. Now, the correct strategy to get rid of Joe Manchin is to beat him in a primary. We tried that. A, a justice Democrat ran against Joe Manchin in the primary, as they should have, and they got about 30% of the vote of Democrats who bothered to vote in West Virginia. Joe Manchin got, you know, about the rest, 60 or however, however many percent. And so we tried that. We, we went down that path. We tried. We failed. 
Now, if Joe Manchin wins his election uh, this year, we're stuck with him for another six years. And that's not great, but it is absolutely better than a Republican taking that seat. And I'll tell you why. Uh, A lot of the arguments around burn the place down, get rid of Joe Manchin. If, you know, we, we have to enforce loyalty. And if we don't, then, you know, this is what happens. And people go so far as to say that because he votes with the Republicans so often, he might as well be one. So we might as well get rid of him and just let a Republican take that seat because he, you know, Joe Manchin votes with the Republicans. Look, he just helped confirm Kavanaugh. He's not doing us any good. That's how the argument goes. And here's why that's wrong. Joe Manchin, being a Democrat and voting with the Republicans every single time, which he doesn't, by the way, for instance, he voted for Obamacare and he voted against the repeal of Obamacare and he voted against uh, Trump's tax cuts recently. So like, he doesn't vote with with the Republicans 100% of the time, but even if he did, The fact that he is a Democrat is relevant, and this is the part that people don't know. The way the government works is that uh, first, everything goes through committees before being brought to the larger House and Senate, and the people who run those committees have an enormous amount of power, and the people who run those committees are members of the majority party whichever party that happens to be. If you need any examples of people in power having too much power and wielding it terribly, look at Chuck Grassley during the uh, Kavanaugh hearings. Look at uh, Mitch McConnell using his power to stop Merrick Garland from even getting a hearing in a committee. That's, That's the sort of power that people who run committees have. And If you need an example of how things could be, first of all, the Budget Committee is one of the most powerful committees in Congress. It's very understandable. They directly control the budget, the purse strings. We talk about budgets as being moral documents. So if the blue wave arrives in November and Democrats win lots and lots of elections in the Senate and they manage to take back the Senate— Do you know who would be in charge of running the budget committee? Bernie Sanders. So Joe Manchin, being a Democrat, just having a D next to his name, and then voting for the Republicans in every vote, would still hold the power of putting Bernie Sanders, of all people, in charge of one of the most powerful committees in the Senate. So if you know how the government works and you know that the details matter an enormous amount, then you simply cannot allow yourself or anyone else to go down the path of directing their incredibly righteous anger at Joe Manchin and actually putting that into some sort of effort to have him lose his election this year. It it doesn't make any sense in any way to do that. He's the candidate this year. We tried to have him not be the candidate. There is absolutely nothing to be done about that at this point. And if Democrats do not gain the majority in the Senate by one seat and Joe Manchin has lost his race, that is no 
cause for celebration. That is a travesty. I, I would absolutely rather Joe Manchin keep his seat as much as I might hate him individually as a politician because it would put so many good people in positions of power where we need those people to be in positions of power. So I just wanted to put that out there. Uh, obviously, we're all living through a terrible moment from the perspective of progressive-minded people who care about the government and, and the direction our country is taking. Our anger is righteous and justified, but there is never an excuse to allow righteous, justifiable anger to be misdirected in a way that causes more harm than good. As always, I'd love to hear your comments on this or anything else. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.